Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Miriam Ribiat and Hevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me here today on the Relief from Grief podcast. Today, I have here with us Mrs. Risa Ratman, who is the author of the book Terror and Amuna in Hernof. Her husband was one of the men that were killed by terrorists on that day in 2014. So thank you so, so much for joining us here today. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm just going to start. I want to tell you something that like a guilt feeling when I was looking at the book and I was reading the foreword by Rabbi Nachman Seltzer and he starts off saying, just like the way everyone remembers exactly where they were by September 9-11, everybody remembers exactly where they were when they heard about this terrorist attack in her nose. And it made me stop. And I said, you know, I don't even like remember. And I remember pouring over the magazines and reading every detail and like soaking up the information. But like that initial, like hearing about it, I, I just don't remember. Now I had a lot going on in my life at that point, And that's probably why, but I almost felt guilty that like, this is life. Like we, we just, we go on. There's so many tragedies in Kaisel and we get so caught up in it and then we move on. And then the next thing happens and the old ones almost get like, you know, yeah, it's like a big memory. And reading the book, I was like, but but it's, it can't be a vague memory because there's people that are living with this every single day. And I guess I just wanted to point out that I, it was like a good like reminder to me that I should have to like remember more, remember better. I don't know something. <laughs> so why don't we start off with Amuna, right? I know you write a lot about the, your Amuna in the book. And I guess what well, you kept on using the word baseline Amuna. And I think that's, I was, I don't know. I was confused a little bit by what you meant by that. I wanted to hear what you meant by that. Since I didn't grow up in a Haredi home, some of the terminology that might come normal to you as hashkacha practice and Hashem's guiding hand in every single moment, this is something that I wasn't so cognizant of. But I had what was baseline Muna. Hashem Hashem created the world and he runs it and whatever that meant. And I maybe didn't think about it until a certain age. And I think that we always are always tweaking that idea that Hashem is completely and totally involved in every aspect of our lives. And I think we have to keep reminding ourselves. The baseline of Muna, I would say, is the just general understanding of, yes, there really is a God. He really created, created the world and everything is under his providence. And then you spend the rest of your life looking and searching for, for where he is really there in all the little details. We don't always get to see all the little details. We don't always get to understand everything. There's lots of things that are ne- we're never going to understand because we can't, you know, it's like if you look at a beautiful picture, you know, we see one side of it. We don't see the other side. All the, all the needlework that goes in the backside of a tapestry. We don't see all the needlework that Hashem is pulling together to make this gorgeous picture on the outside. So, so that's what I mean by baseline of Rona. It's like this just general idea of knowing that there is a God, he created the world and, and going with it more that, that in those details, accepting that we won't always understand why something happens also. So when you were going through, you know, let me just clarify for those listeners that didn't read the book that Lisa's husband was, he didn't die right away. He was in the hospital for like 10 months, I think. I mean, hospital rehab, whatever it was before he was lifted. He was, he was in a coma from, for a year minus two weeks. 
The Pigua happened on Cafe Cheshvon, and then my husband passed away the following year. He was in a coma the whole time? He was in a coma the whole time. Oh, I don't know why I got the impression from the book that he was up and about, or not about, but up in a weir at some points. You didn't read the book then. <laughs> he was not responsive at all for an entire year. That was the point of the book. That was seeing somebody that you loved and cared about in a coma in a totally unresponsive state and trying to do anything you could to reach the inner aspects of his neshama. But it wasn't because he was responding to us or in any obvious way. And there were things that we would see and we would say, what's going on here? But he was definitely, I do not like, I know it's a technical term. I do not like the term vegetative. In fact, when a certain rub wanted to write something about my husband, I wouldn't let him use the term. That's my own personal choice. I do not like that term. It might be accurate. It might be appropriate. I do not like it. So I just ask people not to use it. I personally find it offensive. I it's might it just might be my thing, but I just don't allow like it. But that essentially was his state. He right. had no control over any aspect of his of, of his being basically at all. Wow. And so through it all, I mean, I know you spent you know days and days with him, hours and hours, whatever, almost the whole year. It sounds like. Yeah. You're saying through it all, you, your, your baseline of moon was always there, that this is from Hashem and I'm going to accept it. It definitely was. It definitely was. I once said to a social worker, I keep all the possibilities open. And when I say that, I mean, I had the possibility that he was never going to go back to who he was. That's for sure not. The question is, if he ever came out of the coma, what would he come out as? Like right. somebody very incapacitated. He was very badly injured. Somebody very incapacitated and we would be taking care of him. And what kind of an emotional, psychological state would he have been as a result of all that? And that could have gone on for, or he could have stayed in the coma for another 30 years or he could have been or he or he could have passed away. And I sort of kept these all open as anything was possible. <laughs> It was a social worker. She said, no, don't do that to yourself. It's too much. It was like, you can't think about all these things. I said, no, I just know that those are doors that I might enter. And, and I was aware of them. But suddenly as the time went by, it was just strengthened more and more. It was something that just happened on its own. It was, I could articulate it better and I could say it over better. Part of the push of why I was able to articulate and say it over better maybe was because there were Tehillim groups that were going on in the neighborhood, also for my husband, also for a young man who was dying of cancer. And at some point they asked me if I would be willing to speak. And that's where it all started. I gave like these 10 minute things about Amuna. And because I had to do that for other people, it made me like really concretize what I was thinking and feeling and knowing also for myself. So I made these 10 minute things. And then from there, towards the end of my husband's life, and then afterwards, I started speaking in the American seminaries and in the and in the, the different English speaking niches. And I was fairly active with that until Corona, until COVID, and then bye-bye. All the gatherings, I did a little bit on Zoom and whatever. But also, as you said at the beginning, things move on, you know, you don't, People don't hold on to past tragedies because there's unfortunately usually new tragedies that replace them as this past year saw terrible, terrible things that were going on. 
But interesting, in this last little period, there's been some, again, a peak interest amongst Israelis and Americans and my messages. So I found that very interesting how that how people are still interested in anything I have to say. <laughs> because the bottom line, we're Bali and Munim, and we at Bali and Munim, we, we want to work on ourselves. We want to gain. So what happens when other tragedies happen to you? Like when Mayron happened and things like that, like, does it like trigger all like your feelings from that day? So when Mayron happened, there, it was particularly awful for me because there's a group email in her notes with the English speakers and somebody was asking Where's their, if did they know where their son was? And somebody I have a friendship with. And I didn't even yet know what was going on in Mayron. And I went to a Friday morning wedding for a very, very close friend, son. And it was a very special wedding for personal reasons. And I was at this wedding in a very beautiful setup. And I kept going back to my phone. By then, I guess I knew what happened in Mayron. I had some clear idea of what was going on nobody really knew I guess and I kept going back to my phone did she find her son did she find her son did she find her son and unfortunately we found out either going into Shabbos or Motsi Shabbos that they found their son was no longer alive and that whole week of Mehron so I was at her shiva a couple of times and I was helping out and that whole week of Mehron well everybody was like bawling their eyes and crying crying I was just like a zombie. I could not. And as the next Friday came along and I knew that everybody was getting up from Shiva, I started to cry. I just sat down and cried and cried and cried because they said, now is when the hard work comes. When you sit in Shiva, usually you are buffered. Everybody's with you. Everybody's crying with you. Everybody's sitting with you. And the day Shiva ends, you get up and you have to, sort of live your life in this new circumstance and something especially as, as overwhelming and sudden as Mayron just leaves you with like so where do we go with this what do we do with this and I knew how hard that was because I know what tra- those tragedies are in addition to losing my husband I also lost a child many years previously on it very suddenly so I knew that, and that's and then knowing what they were going to face, that's when I started to cry a lot. That was my own. The I think by the time the Carlin Stolen tragedy happened, and then Florida happened, I think that I just I just was so numb. It's it's just otherwise you fall apart, right? I mean, right. there was I was very impressed. My my daughter got married to an Israeli boy a few weeks before a week or two before, two weeks, let's say, before Florida. And my daughter was looking at her, her computer. She didn't have it. She only had, she didn't, she only keeps her computer in my house. She didn't take it to where she lives. She didn't want to have a computer where she lives for now. And she, mommy, what happened in Florida? Like, why don't we see all these news things about Florida and Florida? I said, oh, you didn't hear. So... It told me a lot about my son and my new son-in-law. Who I, how much did I know him? He is Israeli. I said a, a building in Florida completely collapsed and they're trying to find the bodies. And this young man who doesn't know anybody in Florida, you know, doesn't mean anything to him. His whole face just went white. 
I could not get over it. It just wow. sensitive boy. I was glad my daughter was married to him. <laughs> wow. You can't, you can't take something like that. No, no. Wow. So why do I want to ask you about your son? You mentioned that you lost a, a son. How many years before? My son was nine and a half years earlier than that. So what was, like, I'm curious, I don't know if you're able to articulate it, like differences or similarities between losing a so son? I'm very close to, I, I have friendship with almost all the other Almanas from the Pigua. I was, I'm very close in particular to Chaya Levine. And so we could talk to each other all the time. And I said, hi, you had a hardest. And she says, no, you had a hardest. No, hi, you had a hardest. I said, because I know, because you didn't say goodbye. And she said, you're so right. That was the hardest. You didn't, I never said goodbye. And that's what happened with my son. My son was, we had no idea. He had fallen in a cliff. He had been in Yeshiva and he had gone, he was sort of, whatever, he had a break and he went to ride his bike. And for whatever reason, that's what Hashem determined for him. And it was very hard that I never said goodbye. And the biggest gift I had was the year that my husband was in a coma that we spent, we spent taking care of him, that we knew that we were there for him. We learned with him. We tried to comfort him. We tried to make sure that he was as comfortable as he could be that, and that we could say goodbye to him. We knew that, he, you know, on the day that he died, we knew that that was probably the end because his blood pressure dropped so drastically and it was very comforting to know that I had that entire year for him. And I don't regret one moment of it at all when it was sort of like, okay, now it's time to release you. You shouldn't suffer anymore. And we could say goodbye to him. And I know how hard it is not to say goodbye to somebody. Wow. It's very interesting because I'm very into one of my, my topics that I'm into lately is losing someone suddenly versus expectedly expectantly. And I say, look, the pain is the pain. I mean, I also did it both ways. And I'm like, the pain is the pain. Like who cares how they died? The pain is that now this person isn't there anymore. But you're saying that to you, it really made a very big difference that you had that uh, chance. I have a very involved Hishkacha practice story that happened to me this summer on this subject. Very tragic, not this summer, a few, a couple of months ago, very tragically, a big rub from our neighborhood was Nifter. And I went to be Menachem Abel, and he had been sick just for a very short time before beforehand. His wife is uh, Fredel Dieseldorf, who used to be a by in um, Benos Chava years ago. Some of your listeners, some people might remember her. And Fredy, whatever, she said, speak to my girls. I speak all day long because she had just people coming to Menachem Abel all the time, and her students were there when I was there. So I, I made this point about about it's a gift when you can say goodbye or whatever. And she, there was a young woman there, for a very good friend of the Almana, of Freddy, And she says, oh my, now I understand. She said, I'm named after my aunt, my mother's sister. She, in 1977, she was on a bus. It was a first bus explosion. The bus was coming from, and my aunt was 14 years old. And the bus exploded, and I'm named after her. And I said, and what's your name? And she said, it's Ruhama. I said, my Donna is Rifki Ackerman. At, or now she was 
Now she's telling me she switched to me, but whatever. I said, her mother, my Machatenista, was best friends with Ruhama and another girl named Elisheva. And the three of them did everything together. And uh, well, what was this Ruhama saying? She said, they never got over it. They never got over this loss of their sister. Her grandmother lost her daughter because it was like something, and it was something unheard of at that time, a bus explosion. Nobody ever heard of such a thing. It was un- totally out of out of range, just like the Harnok Pigol was in some ways out of range because it was a an attack on a shul. Right. So, so this, I explained to this Ruhama, my, my Machatenista was best friends with Elisheva and Ruhama, and the three of them were leaving school, and they were going to go to the shop to get their sandals fixed. And then they were going to go back to buy a gun together. But my Machatenista's mother just had a baby, and her mother said, you're not going to the shop, you're coming straight home after school and to help me with the kids. So my Machatenista listened to her mother and went straight home and she wasn't with her friends on the bus and both wow. her friends died Elisheva and Muhammad and when we were making the shidduch it was very important to my machatenis to let me know the story that she felt a connection because these were her her lifeblood friends as a young girl so and but the point was made when I started because I started speaking about this like idea that when you have a sudden loss and you can't say goodbye, it's like there's something, there's always this gaping hole. So she said, now I understand my grandmother and my aunt, my mother and my aunts, everybody so much better because now I understand what they're saying, that they never say goodbye to this person. Wow. Wow. I, someone asked me today, someone reached out to me. There's a, a girl, I don't know if you heard, there was a tragedy this week, I think. Was it this week last week in Farakaway? I didn't hear the details, but I, I, the details, but I heard that there was, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was a drunk driver coming home from a wedding, a and a girl died. Uh, it's so sad. A young girl, 15, 16 years old, and someone reached out to me and told me her friends are really struggling with it. She's like, do you have anything that I could give them or say to them? So it's just interesting that you brought that up about like friends, because it's it's just... It's right. something. Also, it's hard when it's friends. It's very hard because when it's the family has a process that the Chazal give us. They give us Shiva and they give us Nishloshim and they give us, you know, they give you a framework to work in. And friends don't have, we were just saying that I was recently at a Shiva and we were saying that very often the in law children are lost. They love that person, they got to know that person too. But they don't have the same framework for for where they are in the in that situation. And the only thing that I could say to the girls is that you know I'll I'll, t- I'll say one thing that was said to me when I lost my son, and it was a very big comfort. And I always say it to anybody who loses a child because I found it very comforting. Uh, a woman came to me when I was sitting show for my house. And she, she said, "My daughter-in-law, if you remember, she lost a baby, and I remember five, seven months old." And this young woman, I know her, she's a very remarkable young woman. She said, my baby lived his entire life. Five, seven months, whatever that baby was supposed to live, was his entire life. That was how long he was meant to be. And I always said to myself, my son lived his entire life, 17 years, nine months. That's how long he was supposed to live, not a day longer. So that's one thing that I, I hope that somebody will say to these girls so that they can grasp hold of it, that their her, their friend's life was not cut short. This was what this was the number of days 
and hours that she was meant to have. That's the first thing. The second thing is, even though they're not family, there's always things that they can take on for themselves that give their connect themselves to their friend, Kabbalot. And like my Machatenista named her kids after these after these lost friends that she loved so very, very much. Yeah, so that's why I knew when she said Rohama, because it's actually, no, it's Rohama and Tamar. I got mixed up with who was named after these friends. My daughter-in-law is Tammy, named after one friend, and her oldest sister is Rohama, named after the other friend. Wow. So these girls are only 15 years old, and they're not looking at having babies soon, and that's not, but there are so many things that they can do, Kabbalah they can do, small things they can take on, or whatever, you know, works for them in their place to connect themselves. Yeah, it's just, you know, the loss is the loss. Like, they're never going shopping with her again. They're never eating ice cream with her. They're never studying with her. Yeah. So it just, you know, it yeah, hurts. No. And, that, and that's the thing we always have to keep working on is that, like, it's, you know, how we miss them. So things that we could do to sort of fill that hole are things that can connect us to that person and maybe talking or writing up about that person while still fresh in your mind. That was one of the, why the book for me was like a big therapy. It wasn't right. my idea. I had a friend who just, that's what she does really. She mentors people to write memoirs and she just, said you're doing it <laughs> she wanted me to do it in the hospital in the hospital already do it do it in the hospital I couldn't but it was good that I did it right after because lots of people came to me afterwards and said oh, there's so many details how do you remember them so on there were more details that they took out and it was like because it was so fresh that's people come over to me and says yeah I remember in the book you wrote this and this and this I'm like I did I don't remember it anymore, but it's good. But that's what these girls should do. They should start writing everything they remember about their friend, every experience they had, every something they had, because you do forget. Yeah, no, it's true. I remember after my brother was nifter, my, he was 14 and my father told all of us that we have to sit down and write like all of our memories. And he was like, we had to do it right away. I don't remember exactly what right away means, but like really within a short time frame, he was like, you're going to forget. And I don't want you to ever forget anything. And we all wrote down and I have no idea where it is. I would love to see it today. <laughs> Let's talk about guilt because that's always a big thing. No matter what's going on in a person's life when someone dies, almost always people feel guilt. And I was just wondering, I mean, I know also you you did definitely wrote about it in your book, but again, this is talking for all those that are listening. Like what's the, how did you like work out the not feeling the guilt of, you know, I guess staying in the present when you're with your husband, you're with your husband, when you're with your kids, you're with your, you're with your kids. And there's no feeling guilty that, oh, I really should be in the other place. I never had guilt, not one second of guilt, nothing. Not, it never even entered my head. I was That's focused that, that I was focused that every tough key that I had, even when I went to an exercise class, every tough key that I had was where I was supposed to be at that moment. If I think it was just a matter of accepting the situation for what it was. This is where I am. You know, when I did put in place everything I could to make sure that my husband was well taken care of, but I wasn't the one who was going to make sure that, like, it didn't have to all be done by me. And I put into place that my kids could be taken care of as well as I could as well. And I, I think that I, I'm not going to, I'm going to say something a little bit not nice, but I think guilt is really like a little bit of an ego trip. Like, if you're feeling guilty, then it means that you, you could control the situation. 
And I knew that I had no control over the situation. I could only do the best I could. Is that like your nature or is that something you had to work on? Because it's amazing. Do I never feel guilt? Look, I have an ego and I have I have work on anger. I think, though, I think, unfortunately, the fortunate side is I think that when we're in the big things, I see Hashem very clearly. And in the stupid things, like if my kids insult me or something, I mean, I'm better about this now. I'm a little more mature now than maybe when I was a younger mother. But in the stupid things or somebody else insults me, I could still get like, how could they do that? And how could this be? And then I can get bogged down in stupid, petty things. I think in the big things, I see a shem. And then the little things I get lost in how because they're so stupid. Like they're right. so stupid. And they hit the ego. So so I would say, like also when my son passed away, there was nothing. My husband and I said, we wrote on his Levi sign, Hashem not Hashem not Tenat, And it was like unquestioned. This wow. is it's amazing. Wow. My son, there was no real place to feel guilty. What was I gonna feel guilty for? He had a bike. Like, you know, he, you know, there was no, there was nothing. Hashem didn't put me in a place where I could feel guilty. No, but there's there. guilty. Did I, did I tell him, you know, did, did I tell him I love you today? Was I nice to him? Did we get upset last I, week? I'm, I was very sad. I didn't tell him enough how much I loved him, but it wasn't guilt. It was sad. And I right. remember somebody, somebody was at the shiva and she says, I'll never forget. You just kept crying again. Just tell your kids how much you love them. Just tell your kids. I know he knew I loved him. I know he knew it. He was my Corbin because he was my oldest, like oldest children are. But I know he knew <laughs> I loved him. We're extremely close. But I, if I knew what was happening, would I have said it a thousand times more? I'd like to think so. I do try. It's hard for me. I'm not, I'm not a lovey-lovey kind of schmushki kind of person, which is good in the sense that it helps me through these big challenges that I've gone through. I'm, I always tell people I'm the proverbial cold lit back. <laughs> I have to work on it. I have to work on it. I'm like a little the opposite, at least with my younger kids. My youngest now is four, can I narrow? And I am like so nuts over him. Like I can't even explain it. And every time I just like look at him, I'm like, oh, I love you so much. I love you so much. I'm like, this kid is going to grow up with such an ego. All he hears all day long is I love you. <laughs> you can never say I love you too much. I'm off once, but it's whatever. He's already like, go away. If I say it to my older ones, you know, like my 17-year-old son, he's like, okay, that's awkward. I'm like, it's not awkward for a mother to tell a son that she loves you, no matter how old you are. So just get used to it. <laughs> In my book, I wish someone would have told me. Did we discuss that? It's, it's a book for teens that, okay, so I recently wrote a book for teens that lost its parent. So I, I wrote a whole section on jealousy and how, like, sometimes you could feel jealous. Yes, your friend has two parents and you don't. It's going to come. It's, it's It depends what you do with it. That's the... That's the issue over here, but don't shove it away because it's just going to come back stronger. You can't control if it comes. I don't know, reading your book and you were writing about how the people that were hospitalized, but then they were discharged and they went home. I was like, how are you not jealous of them? Or were you and you had to work through it? <laughs> there was a fluttering of jealousy of some sort, but there was, I think, unquestionably, this was my Nisayim, and that was theirs. And even when they went home, it wasn't like it wasn't like violets and roses. Right. They had their own Nisayonos. I think that I was 
I think it was a lot of things. The first thing I think, and the savings grace and the thing that kept me and my family going so much is that we just had the whole world involved in us. Like we were so well taken care of. So it just kept us very strong. So that's the first thing. The second thing was, I mean, the whole thing was so out of range. The whole thing was like out of nowhere. This is, you know, this is before Pittsburgh and this is before the one in in California. Nobody ever, since Crystal not. I mean, in Turkey, there, there was an incident. But like going to a shul and murder people with axes and guns and knives. And, and by virtue of, by virtue of the fact that it was so beyond comprehension, you didn't start making these cheshmonos. Well, they're like this and they're like that. And I, I remember one little thing I was like a little jealous of. The other two men who were very badly injured were together. They were in one part. They were in one wink and I was all by myself. And I felt kind of like ignored, like everybody was going over there to the two of them and nobody was really. And then I would say, no, it's not true. They really do care about me and they really are with me. You know, in the early, early days, they do care about me and they are with me. That was the other thing. I didn't really see them. Those two were together in their ICU and I was separate from them. I didn't see them in the same way. Occasionally, like if I want to get up and stretch my legs, I would go over and see what's doing by this. And they also said different people come by and say, you know, how are you doing? What's doing by you? But I think I have a weird thing about the Holocaust. If you ever read a Holocaust book, you hear about these people who are essentially going through a lot of the same things. They're being starved. They're being beaten. They're being tortured. They're whatever, if it's in the ghetto or the camps or wherever it is. And even though they're part of this whole huge picture called the Holocaust and whatever place they're finding themselves, each one was in their own island of pain in many ways. They were not just like it's us. You read those Holocaust books, you read them again and again and again. It's my story, my pain, my pain. Nobody, nobody like sat there and said they did see themselves as a collective often. If you read also Pearl Banish's ones about the Basako girls together, they did see themselves as a collective together and of truly up this way. But when it came down to it, there was a lot of individual pain and I took from that that even though you could have a group of women going through difficult divorces or special needs kids or whatever they each one might be part of that collective but they're in their own little pain circle of pain and that is true and I think that was also for me even though I was with theoretically these other people were terribly injured I, I, I knew that I was in my own place. I did not like when people said to me, like, you know, look, my husband had this and this and this, and, and he's now much better, and so will your husband. I, I didn't like those things. It just put me in a, it just put me in a awkward place. Right, because like, they don't know that your husband's going to get better just because their husband had something similar. Right. Also, and also, I don't like, I, I had a very hard time with anybody who would come with me with the idea that if you only think positive, it came up a couple of times. One event I didn't write in the book, 
If you only think positive enough, like, you know, you'll see results. You, know, you have to like focus on that Hashem can do everything and he can whatever. I really didn't like that. I really, I really resented being told things like that. But on the other and it was an issue that I had to work out and I had to work it out a lot. And the last year, I'm part of a learning group with Shani Gibraltar, a longtime teacher in Sharpman. She gave a shear on Perkov Zion and Elo, and she gave a whole shear just to basically on Kaveh Hashem, giving hope to Hashem, and what it means to have hope. And it actually changed me a lot. It changed my whole way of looking at life. That yes, we have to have a moon that wherever we are, whatever's happening is from Hashem and it's right and it's appropriate and Hashem has. And it's not that I never, I, I write, I, you know, I always left the door open that Hashem could do anything. Right. But deepening myself in the idea of Kaveh as Hashem, having hope that anything's possible, that's, that's a very important thing. Not to go through this airy-fairy way that some people are. Think positive and everything will happen the way you want because that's very popular today and I really have an issue with it. But knowing that that living grounded in uh, living grounded in nature, in reality, because that's how we're supposed to live, but knowing that no matter what, Hashem is above all that. And um, bringing those ideas together was something that I only... I feel like I only conquered that in the last year. Really? I, I had, I think, a fluttering idea of what that meant at the time when I was in the hospital, but I have much more, it's much more internalized now. And, and now if on the occasions that I, I do speak, not as often as I used to, I emphasize it for people more, you know, Yes, we have to live grounded. Yes, we have to live that, you know, this is a chance plan and, and we're not the ones in charge and we're not ones that, but yes, we can always, you know, keep, you know, we always have to have that tikva. Um, not not because we can control the outcome, because I don't believe we can control the kind of outcome. We can merit things to change by our actions. Sometimes we do see that. We see decrees are, are whatever, but, you know, never to, not, not to, never to give up. The idea that Hashem can do anything. Right. Someone else that, that I interviewed on this podcast also, she was saying sometimes she has a hard time with, you know, everyone, you know, take on this avenue and do that avenue and let's do this and let's do that. And it's it's fine to dive and we should dive and no matter what, but let's be a little realistic about what's going on over here also. And mm-hmm. I think it's an important point. We have to, like you said, we have to continuously believe that Hashem could do anything, but if we're not grounded in reality, then we're so much more hurt afterwards. And then it's harder to even really have a Muna. Like if we're more, if we're more grounded in reality, then we could still have that connection to Hashem that Hashem did this to me and I accept it and Hashem will help me get through it. But if we're living in La La Land, then it's much harder. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's cruel for people who try to take other people into the La La Land. I think that's, <laughs> that's actually cruel. I had those experiences. I have. I, I, I used to call them the good fairy experiences. I really didn't go for them. I really didn't go for them. I didn't like. I didn't like it. People would give me their stories and whatever, and I, I didn't appreciate them. But because I was so grounded in in the here and the now, 
I had to work a little bit more to the idea that of tikva and hope and how it is still a part of Amuna. So when you had to, you said before you had to work through what these people said, does that mean you had to work through on like not being like really annoyed at them or did you have to learn how to like, um, yeah. not, not like you didn't learn how to communicate better and say like, you know, this is something that I don't find helpful in a nicer well, way, I guess. I didn't have time to sit there and go into, into deep hashkafic relate discussions with people on Amuna and Tikva when I was going through it. And it wasn't so often, it wasn't so much. And I'm very good at being a duck. A duck is somebody that the, the, the feathers are sort of on them, that the water washes off of them. So like if somebody tells me something and I think that they're nonsense, I was going to think, say a different word, but <laughs> whatever. And like, no, not terrible, but whatever. <laughs> I just think, it, and I just like ignored it. Like I'm not answering you, but... Yeah, it really annoyed me that somebody was giving me on the, on the, what essentially turned out to be the day that my husband passed away that, well, I like to think positive, okay? <laughs> okay, whatever. I'm glad you do. But this is my husband and my reality. And so... I want to ask you, because you started off the book and I found it very interesting how you were writing how it was just going to be like, Got which words you use, just like a plain, boring day. You were going to stay home and get things done. And it was just going to be like a, a calm day, finally, after being extra super busy with a lot of things. I, I wonder, like, I, I guess it really stuck with me because I know, like, I remember saying, like, like I need something exciting. I, it's, I'm, I'm bored. I'm bored of just plain old routine. I need something, you know, exciting. And I learned that boring is really exciting, is really good. Like, that's what we want. We only want to have boring and routine unless like, you know, for some cause, but so I guess, I guess, I don't know, like wondering if your perspective kind of changed. My question is more if like, if you think that, oh, good, today is going to be a plain old boring day. If, if it almost like brings up trauma for you, like, oh no, wait one second. <laughs> like, I don't want anything major to happen now. Every so often I have a joke with somebody, are things back to normal? Hey, normal, especially after Corona, like now, COVID with everybody, like normal, what's normal anymore? And like, what would be normal? So plain boring day? No, I'll always take a happy plain boring day. Like, no, <laughs> it's fine. fine. It doesn't, maybe it's true. Maybe going back in the earlier years, because this is already seven years since the actual attack. Maybe going back from the earlier years, maybe that was that was something that was like a sort of shtuck. You know, today I want a quiet, plain, boring day. But at this point, I'm certainly at a stage where like, oh, today's going to be a nice, quiet day. Okay. I know we have to end off, but I just, I'm wondering what you, if you could leave us, if you have anything to leave us with is how you stay connected to your husband and how your children do also. We talk about him. I don't force it on them. You know, they'll say things and whatever. I'm sure my older kids, they see themselves like that. They're how they're running their lives. It's like a, just an extension of him. You know, Baruch Hashem, I have <clears throat> three sons and two son-in-law that are all still in Kolo. Oh, wow. Three sons? No, no. Okay. Two sons in Kolo and two son-in-laws, and I have a son who's like a very big masmid in yeshiva. 
And I think, you know, they know by doing that, it's carrying on his what he would want. And my daughter's, you know, living that life. And my younger kids, I think they take pride in who their father was. They know, yeah. who, you know, enough has been said to them about who their father is. And, but I don't like to, I don't want it, I don't need it to be heavy on them. You know, it should be something that's a natural, comes out natural, you know. It's more in subtleness. You know, we have pictures up, not on the walls right now, but we have, you know, the pictures are around and things that were his, you know, that we see, you know, when they learn from his shafts, they know that it's his and things like that. Right, right. Like, I'd rather it be calm and subtle. Right, right. Wow. Okay. I, I think you've really like given us like so much good food for thought. You brought out so many good points. No, really, there's, I think so many things that people could really gain. So I really, mm-hmm. really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything like important that we missed before we, we stop? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always wish when I write in my book, when I, when I write a thingy for people, I always write that we should be zakha to the gula soon. Oh, it's, Kalisra's gone through a lot. And I think our yearning is getting just stronger and deeper. And Hashem. I mean, thank you so, so much. My pleasure and Batslacha. You have just listened to an episode by Miriam Ribiat. For more episodes or for additional information on future episodes, visit our website, www.chevralomdeimishna.org or email mribiat at chevralomdeimishna.org.